We're going to start a little differently tonight. If you have your book, if you take your book and turn to page 5.4, 5.4, please. Start a little differently. Uh, this series of studies has such a routine for it. The problem is ruts, uh, routines can turn into ruts, but I also have, there is method to my madness. There on 5.4, you see the, te- this, the scripture, Psalm 95. What I'd like us to do tonight as we begin, because of the nature of the topic, is start by reading the first seven verses together responsively. In other words, I'll do the first one, you do the second one. I got the odd ones, you got the even ones, all right? We'll go back and forth. Just the first seven verses as we start tonight looking at worshiping together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that you are the great God, the great King above all gods. And tonight, as we talk about the subject of worship, uh, worshiping together as our our life, uh, participating not just in blocks of worship together with the church, but as we're going to try to pull apart tonight a life of worship. So guide us, we pray. But most importantly, help us to have the mindset of this psalmist, and that is a recognition of the person to whom we are worshiping and before whom we worship, that we may honor you. And we thank you that we can worship you because of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, if, if we did that, uh, in doing that, obviously, in part, is to set the tone for the night, and that is turning our attention to when we talk about worshiping together, we can think quickly in terms of structure and form. Even in that responsive reading, if I say responsively reading, what might you think of when it comes to worship? You're going to think Catholic and liturgy, right? right? Because that's what we think in terms of, of worship. We think worship in terms of structure, pattern, models, ways of doing it. And, and so that's part of the problem with our thinking. We've, we've come full term on that. So what we want to work on and talk about tonight is this aspect of worship. What does it mean and what is it supposed to look like in our lives? And that's where we want to draw from tonight as we work through it. Now, in doing that, let me just do one other thing. Um, let's go to page 5.4, I believe. Go to 5.10. If, if I was to say just very quickly tonight, word association, you know, if you say dog, somebody says cat, you say bird, somebody says, what's that? Okay, yeah, <laughs> noisy. I had no idea one with birds. I was waiting to see what you'd say, all right? So when we say worship, what words do you associate with worship when you think about it? Okay, church, prayer, what else? Praise. Song, God. You snuck God in there, all right? What else? 
You see, more and more, uh, as we're looking at worship as it relates to this church, but all, and I'll say this this way, all biblical churches, churches that assume that the Word of God is the Word of God and makes the Word of God central to what they do, we're going to draw our worship thinking from Scripture, but how it, how it plays out may be different here in Trenton, Michigan, well, I should say maybe, it will be different here in Trenton, Michigan than it will be in Mwanza, East Africa. Uh, my wife and I got a chance back in 2005 to go to Mwanza, East Africa and watch the folks of the church there and that village church. And as they sing, they're swaying, they're clapping because that's their culture. That's just how it was. Uh, that's just the norm for them. Now, do we need to go in there and tell them, well, that's not how you're supposed to do church. Church, you don't sway, you don't clap. No, it's just that is their expression as long as it's rooted in Scripture. So that's what we want to look at tonight. Now, having said that, I start out with this statement. And I don't know if this will bug you or if this will make you go, hmm, I don't know about that. And that says this, worship is ultimate, not missions. Worship is ultimate, not missions, which means worship is is more important than missions. Okay? Agree, disagree, thoughts, you're like, I don't know, I have no idea, don't even feel like thinking around. Okay? I got some agreement, a couple nodding ahead, a few people got glassy looks, and the rest of you are like, you're going to tell us anyhow, so why bother answering? All right? Okay? Now, this is a statement from John Piper, and here's the rest of what he said. As Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Here's the rest of what he said. Missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, the reason we do missions is to reach people with the gospel so that they will worship the true God. He goes on to say, worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And if you'll notice today in worship models and styles, it is very, very, very man many times. It's about what does man want, what do we want to have in the worship to make it so that people want to come, and, and we've lost the point of it. And he goes on to say when this age is over, and this is a very, very powerful statement, when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. In heaven with God, worship will continue forever. But when Christ comes back, missions are done there's no reason to go to the nations there's no reason to go to our neighbor there's no reason to go with anybody with the gospel so the point we're trying to drive home tonight is we have talked about many times in churches about evangelism reaching people with the gospel and this is an important and necessary part of why we exist but here's the danger if we put evangelism and and sharing the gospel as the most important the danger can be what drives what we do is numbers, 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 success, 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 and we miss the point that ultimately it's first and foremost about worship. If we are not good worshipers of God, let me just say this very bluntly. If we are not good worshipers of 9.30 until 10.45 on Sunday, all right, that's how we think. But if we are not good worshipers of God, biblical worshipers of God, we will not be good witnesses for God. In other words, how we relate to God 
this from 9.30 to 10.45 on Sunday mornings, but the rest of the week, 176 and a quarter hours, all right, what's left of the week, that is going to either motivate us to, drive us to, be mission-minded, or we're going to just be thinking about ourselves and our little world and what makes us happy, what's going to happen. So that's where we're trying to, to dig out tonight. And, and, and worship isn't simply about doing. In other words, we're going to go do worship. We're going to go to worship. Worship is also about being, and that is how I live, how I think, how I relate to God and to one another is all a part of worship. And we're going to try to tease some of that out tonight. Now, if you would go back in, and I was going to show you something, but time won't work, won't work with this there on page 510. So let's go all the way back to page 5.1, right back to the very beginning, 5.1. My, my goal tonight, among other things, is to help us see that at the end of the day, there's going to be, a, as, I, as I mentioned last week, we're in a second section. The first three weeks was looking at the church. The last nine weeks is looking at our participation in the church. And my point tonight is going to be, at the end of the day, if this is not clearly central in our thinking that worshiping is ultimate... Worship is everything. We don't participate that way, then we won't probably. How's that for a definite answer? We won't probably uh, do those participating in ministry. So, here's what we're looking at tonight. Very quickly, under overview, the issue for ideas. We're going to develop a biblical framework for for worship. Examine the importance of worship. And really the one that I focus on tonight for us with the short time that we have is this. Provide a basis for evaluating the quality of our worship in our daily lives. And I'll admit, I'm going to focus more on our daily lives because time's not going to permit us to go, let's figure out how we can make our worship services better. All right? Quite frankly, that usually isn't the problem in most churches. Uh, it can be. It can be a, a, a downer or it can be worship is all about entertaining the daylights out of people. Um, I was at a conference recently and them talking about how, and I, I, I sat there going, I wish I had a recording of this. I could play to this class tonight. But this man saying, and what they're trying to do, uh, their whole curriculum, the materials that they're trying to promote was really all about an image an image and about cool, and his statement was something to the effect that, you know, the world has all this cool stuff out there that they use, and people come to their, their shows and come to their things, and he said, why don't we use all that? We need to use all that so people will say, hey, what the church has is better than what they have, and I'm like, but stop and think about that. Our draw isn't the show and the glitz and the glamour and the lights. Our draw is supposed to be God. Our draw is supposed to be Jesus Christ. So when we think that way, we've already played our hand that we've misunderstood what worship is. So in other weeks, we've talked about these sound bites down at the bottom. In other words, as we talk about the sound bites and we're asking these questions tonight, rather than you tell me which ones you think are good or bad, I'm going to do something different tonight, all right? Something to just kind of jog our thinking a little bit. I'm going to read the statement and then give a one-word reply to it. Just one word to hopefully 
hit the point of where we need to think or how we should wrestle with this. So here's the first statement by A.W. Tozier. And by the way, he wrote some incredibly powerful books in the 1950s as he saw the drift of the church away from God. The, and, and really, if he could write again uh, of where the church is now in the 21st century, I can only imagine what he would write today. But this is in the 1950s when obviously the church wasn't nearly adrift as where it is today, but it wasn't his day. He said this, and again, I'm going to read the sentence, and then I'm going to give you one word to hit it with, all right? Worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. My one word, and this one's different, I'm going to change a word in a sentence, because he wrote it in the 1950s. I would say this, worship is the distorted jewel of the evangelical church, and I mean distorted today. In other words, he was saying that worship was just kind of missing out. I would say we got worship going on, but right now we are distorting the daylights out of that worship. We are changing it so much to be so man-centered. Now, the rest of them, I'm just going to give you a quick reply to them. Here's a second statement. Worship is more than singing some songs together on Sunday mornings. If you were thinking, what word? My word is right. All right? Worship is more than singing songs on Sunday. It's got to be. Uh, there is a ton in Scripture on worship. I go to the second, a third one. I don't understand why worship services can be so different from church to church. Why don't we all worship the way God wants us to? going on out there and who's right um who 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 is the expert on worship people writing books on worship so if a guy has done a lot of research and talked to a lot of pastors and he's given all the answers on what they say is he right um is he the authority here's another statement worshiping on sunday morning is a waste of time if we haven't worshiped god in the week and my answer to that is maybe my one word is maybe that can be true if I've been living my life all about me during the week. But even in spite of that, God could get a hold of my attention during that worship service in spite of me flaking out uh, the other 176 and a quarter hours of the week. All right, so God could do that. So I would say maybe. Here's, a, here's the next one. The church would worship more if we sung more of the old hymns of the faith. You ever heard somebody say that or something like that? You know, the reason we're just kind of getting away from God is because we're getting away from those good old hymns of the faith. And, you know, this is going to sound a little blunt, uh, and I guess it is. I would say wrong, all right? Now, that doesn't mean, then, we throw out the old hymns of the faith. But that is saying that the only way we can relate to God is if we use thee, thou, and old songs, all right? But even when the King James translators in 1611 translated their version of the English Bible, they were bringing it up to date in the 1611. And they said, years later, there's going to be people going to bring it up to date in the common language. And honestly, in the late 1800s, and I'm probably jumping ahead of myself tonight, but C.H. Spurgeon, he didn't have any instruments in his church. He didn't have, he had nothing. There wasn't like piano and organ. There was nothing because he thought music should be just sung. Hymns should be sung. There should be no musical instruments. None. 
and yet his church thrived, obviously because he was in his day the prince of preachers. Finally, last one, and this is an interesting one. I, I could worship better if we did not use pagan instruments to accompanish, accompany the worship songs. All right? Uh, okay, so you guys got that smirk. Same smirk I got reading, all right? Okay, so what's wrong with that? I mean, I, I'm going to say that one. I'm going to say wrong, all right? That one's wrong as well. But what's wrong with that? If you can pick one word in there that's like, okay, that makes me smirk. What's the word? Okay, you all picked it, all right? What instrument is not pagan, all right? If we understand pagan, pagan is made is an instrument made by sinners. Are there any instruments that are not made by sinners? I haven't heard of any yet. I mean, I don't know if Gibson was a believer or not, but he made a lot of guitars, so I'm thinking maybe not. I don't know, all right? So the whole point is... Again, we've got these goofy ideas coming into worship, and and these are the things that drive our decisions, either personally or as a church. Now, I've blabbed for 15, 18 minutes. Just step back for a second. Um, Me step back, and then you're at the forefront here. What, again, of those statements, of what I've already said so far, where are you coming from, your background in worship, your view of worship, how has it changed? Did anything from what we've read and studied in this, uh, and that's assuming you did your homework this week, all right? Um, what has changed in your thinking, or what do you see is changing? Just curious to hear from you more than me right now. Or what bugs you about what's changing, or what's good about what's changing? Yes, Jenny. Jenny. style of doing it yeah well and 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 what the tension that she just brought up i mean and and that's that's the tension that i think maybe not all of us depending on what our background was the tension was it feels wrong or it doesn't feel completely right because we've been so attuned to a certain way of doing things that changes from this to this feels like well that feels like and sounds like that way out there. And it looks like we're going down the slippery slope and, you know, therefore then theology's gone down the drain. And, you know, there can be truth. I, I, would, I would agree with some who say that quite frankly, quite often, churches go in a wrong direction theologically because at times they've let their music go in a wrong direction. Now, again, what is that magical wrong direction? Well, obviously... The lyrics need to be God-centered, word-centered. And, I, and I'm going to have to stop and think, have I adopted styles that today are still, in our culture, are still very problematic? 
Now, I'll just play one of my cards and I'll come back to your thoughts. And that is, uh, I'm still not comfortable with saying rock, uh, uh, rap Christian music. It's going to be probably to my dying days and I'm going to be good with that because, and I'm just going to be really crass here. Most rap music is effing this, effing that. Okay, that's pretty crass. So how can I even take John 3.16 and put it to a rhythm that for most people, when I'm going past their car and the, the bass speakers are vibrating my car as I go by it, and I can hear a lot of the words, and they're not really good words, how am I going to be comfortable with something that essentially is, remember, worship is about God. Worship is about how do I portray God and how important he is. So again, that's attention. But Jenny's brought up attention, and that is from, let's say, um, A Mighty Fortress. All right, This song by Martin Luther that's a high church song from a long time ago. You take that to something over here that perhaps people would say, well, that's really contemporary. Well, contemporary sinful that just simply means it was written while we were still alive you know that's all it means essentially all right so that's part of the tension yes both really just opening the the opening up the can of worms a little bit <laughs> You say say that again. It would be pretty impossible to do what? To have Christian rap music as a congregationally done. Right? Yes. I mean, we'd all have to be pretty. pretty Boom! Skilled, yeah, absolutely. You know, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir, Denny. Right. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and it is the balance. I mean, here, here is what churches did in the 70s going into the 80s to accommodate both groups. They did, and I, I, I was looking at a church's website because I was trying to help a friend find a church down in Houston, Texas. I found a church. They still have a traditional and contemporary service. Let me ask you, when you do that, what do you do to a church? You divide the church. You got the, this group and this group. And, and it's like, this is what we want, this is what we want. Well, again, you sound like, you sound like the Burger King church. Have it your way, all right? And, and again, I, I hit that nerve because worship isn't about me. Worship's about God. That's what's going to drive. But you're right, and that's why the music is trying to be a blend here at Community of introducing new songs, bringing in old songs, having them all there together, because admittedly, Newer songs at times can be very shallow, very repetitive. Older songs can be deeply theological and, and thought-provoking. Now, that's not to stereotype all of them that way. There can be hokey stuff from the old stuff. There can be really powerful songs from today. All right, But that's just what has happened. So, enough of that. Yes, sir.
Yeah, and see, here's where we have to wrestle with. Again, culture changes, and we're not going to be able to solve it all tonight because, I mean, I, like I said, by asking these questions, I'm opening cans of worms. Now I'm closing those cans of worms real quick so we can move on. Uh, I, I purposely wasn't going to go through everything in the book tonight because I'm hoping you read some of it, but I want to hit some key things that help lock down at least some foundational thinking because we're not going to answer all that stuff out there. And in this room, there's going to be a diversity of opinion on and what may be what I'm comfortable with, not comfortable with, what I feel is right, what I don't feel is right. Um, I'll make a confession. It's like a weird confession. Right? Carol's like, what's he going to say? <laughs> what's he going to say? I grew, up, I grew up, yeah, I grew up with, you don't go to the movie theater, you know? It, Anyway, the old the byline was, because if you go to the movie theater, you could be going to a Disney one, and it's G, but they might think you're going to an R one, and even if you're going to the G one, it's contributing to the R movies, and blah, 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 blah. Oh, and then came VHS, and then DVDs and everything else. The tension was, all right, so people are watching worse movies in the privacy of their home, because they can sneak an R-rated movie that they would never let themselves walk into in the theater, and so what it forced in our churches, if we thought it through correctly, was the issue wasn't the theater. It's never been the theater per se. The issue was, let's say, for example, Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of good report. If there's any virtue, any praise, think on these things. That becomes the benchmark. But I'll admit, like Jenny's saying, I remember the first time going into the theater. Other than when I was a kid, my parents took us to Sound of Music and... And uh, Song of Norway. That was it. You know, like, wow, that was a sound of music stuck, stuck around. Song of Norway, you have no idea who this is. All right. But I can remember going in going, it feels like I'm doing something sinful. And again, part of this is a conscience issue. And as Romans 14 and 15 are talking about, even our consciences can be wrong. Um, and that's sometimes how we evaluate things more than Scripture. So that's what we have to wrestle with. So I'm throwing a lot of things into the mix. So having said all that, let's go over to page 5.2 to just ask a question and then jump into some text. The question, as we always do each week, if, if you've taken the time to do the homework, and by the way, here's the homework, and I'll make sure you get it before you leave. Um, what is the central question or issue before us? So this is what I pulled out from just looking at the beginning. Before I try to do this before I get into the scriptures, before I read the article, so I'm making myself do what they want us to do. And that is, what is the central issue? So here's the question I put out. Am I really worshiping God the right way all the time? Okay? Because it seems like it's talking about what is real worship by what they're hinting at, 
and it also seems to be hinting that it's more than just a Sunday deal, all right? Uh, because it, it, in the sound bites, it was kind of hinting at that. So I put out, here's where I think we're trying to go. This is what I think we need to focus on, or at least that's what I was getting out of it as I'm wrestling through it. So am I really worshiping God? And that is not according to my standards or according to somebody else's standards, but according to God's word. And am I doing it all the time? All right, not just a Sunday go to worship sort of thing. Now, for sake of time, we're not going to read every scripture, but there are some key ones I'd like us to read and then interact with. And there's none more important than this first one here on 5.2, John chapter 4. I'm going to read this, and as I read this little bit longer section, you listen for one word that stands out. And I think it'll be pretty obvious what the one word is as we go. All right? This is Jesus at, in Samaria with the woman at Samaria, and they have this incredible theological discussion because she wanted to change the subject. He hit to where she was. Uh, she was the Liz Taylor of her day. All right? She'd been married a mess of times, and she's living with another man that's not her husband. All right? So she changes into a theological discussion. She says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And all God's people said, what was the word that we're talking about? All right. Ten times. And, and really, it's in different forms, but it's the same word. It's the same word that in the New Testament is literally to bow towards somebody. All right. If I think back to the Old Testament, which a lot of times New Testament writers were thinking in terms of it, you go back to Daniel chapter 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and a bungalow. All right. You remember them. All right. Just making sure you're awake. All right. They were asked, they not asked, when I'm saying they were asked, they were told, all right, when the music kicks up, you bow down and most likely not only made a nine foot statue of gold, it probably looked like Nebuchadnezzar. That's probably the bottom line. But they were told, you are to bow. Why? Well, when you bow, you're acknowledging that that poor person is somebody to honor, somebody who's important, and somebody that you must submit to. All right. So the idea of worship isn't just music, singing, showing up on Sunday. We have a sermon, we have songs, we do the offering, we do announcements, we pray, we preach, we go home. That's worship. That's not really the foundational idea. What Jesus is saying in his interaction with this woman in Samaria is that what God is looking for is people that are true worshipers, and the word is they bow toward God in honoring him for who he is, recognizing his importance, and they live in submission to him. Now, when Jesus said, Father is looking for true worshipers, what is he implying? Okay, exactly. In other words, let's just admit this. Every one of us are born a worshiper. Every one of us are born a worshiper. Um, Romans chapter 1 is 
Paul talking about what before he gets into Romans chapter 3 about sin, he's talking about the fact that we reject the true God, but we worship everything under the sun, including the sun itself. But the reality is we are born worshipers. And quite frankly, anybody that's had a two-year-old um, in their terrific twos, uh, whether, they, whether they acknowledge the person that they start worshiping when the terrific twos kicks in, even if that's like at 18 months or 13 months or whatever it is, whenever it kicks in, that person that that little twerp is worshiping want what they want. All right, that's that's the bottom line. And so, what Jesus is saying to this woman in Samaria, she, he's laying out for her that there are worshipers out there. But God is looking for and calling out those who are true worshipers. Now, here's the tension that I want to just, not tension, but here's the part that gets a little fuzzy for us and I think is important. At the end of that text, it says God is spirit, or if you had the King James before, it used to say God is a spirit, but it's really better to put God is spirit. In other words, what, what he's telling us, what Jesus is saying, God is not a human being like you and me. He is a spirit being. It's like in Luke 23, after Jesus resurrected, he said, they were looking at him, he said, I'm not simply spirit, you can touch me. You can't touch a spirit. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. So God primarily is spirit, which means he is everywhere. He's not localized. He's not like you sitting in a chair at a table in this room. So God is spirit. But here's where it gets tricky. Because in the writing of Jesus' day, they use Greek, and they didn't use capital letters in the Greek New Testament. So it's like we have to guess, all right, is that a capital S spirit, like Holy Spirit? And then when it says we must worship in spirit and in truth, is that capital S or small s? If it's capital S, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. If it's small s, we're talking about something a little bit different. Although that could imply the Holy Spirit, all right, and what he does. All right, let me give you my short answer on that because I have to give you a short answer on that, all right? He is trying to draw out for us that when we talk about worship, when we talk about what he is looking for in true worshipers, he said people that worship in spirit and in truth. He has been talking about the place. They go back and forth about the place. And if you remember in Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders, it's almost without fail, it's about routine and ritual, routine and ritual. Um, that's what they're all about. They're all about routine and ritual. Even so much that way back in the book of, of Isaiah, after God has given all the, the specifics of what sacrifices are to be like and how they're to be done, in Isaiah chapter 1, God says to the people through Isaiah, I hate your feasts, I hate your sacrifices, cut it out. Which is like, but you told us to do that. But the whole point was, they had turned this worship, this bowing down, this recognizing God and submitting to him in just a routine and ritual. As we are to worship in spirit, I would say that's small s, like what we have in our text here. We worship in spirit, which means you and I are not just doing external motions. We're not just, as we say, doing church, going through the motions. We have our heart, our mind, our emotions are engaged in that worship. We're not just sitting there with our hands on our lap or under our lap or whatever because 
we're just doing it and we're ready to go out the door or hit the bagels and coffee at break, whatever the case may be. But yet, that's what he's saying. If we are a people, and I, I was going to write it on the board and I forgot to because I was going to tell you these words and you'd be like, I can't write that down. So I'll just say it. There's two extremes we could have. If we, if we have people that focus only on spirit, well, let me give you the second half of this. I'm really going to confuse you. Pardon that. Hold that thought. All right, let me finish the rest of what he said there. Worship in spirit and in truth. So that means it's not just external motions. It's involving the whole person. When you and I worship, it is the whole person. It's not just I listen. It's that I engage. And I engage in my mind, my heart, my emotions, my will. All of me engages because I want to respond toward God in a certain way. All right? And if we look at the Old Testament into the New Testament, their worship was very exuberant. It was, it was filled with praise. All right? It was also very orchestrated. All right? So that's part of the tension for us as well. But here's the second thing, worship in spirit and in truth, which that means essentially it is rooted in the Word of God. And that is, our worship is not what is the latest book saying we do on worship. What is the latest fad in worship? What is the latest style of worship? Because usually those fads, those styles, those directions, almost without fail, and I say almost without fail, emphasis on almost, they are man-centered. And that is, it's about what's current in our society, what seems to be pragmatically working. This church, because they do this, they're growing. So, hey, we want to grow. We don't want to be one of those dead churches that are growing. So they did these things in worship. So this is what you do to make your church move and grow and, and be a happening place. But Jesus said true worship is we worship in spirit. It's not just routine and ritual, but it's also over here. It's not according to what other people are saying or the experts are saying. It, it has to be rooted in the Word of God. So here's where I was trying to go. If, if we just have truth and no spirit, we have what we might call dead orthodoxy. And that is, uh, quite honestly, that's what's happened in Germany. Germany is one of the hardest places in Europe for missionaries to make any kind of, any kind of uh, success when it comes to evangelism and outreach and missions. Germany was a hotbed of religion and really was the place of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther. But to this day, it is one of the most anti-Christianity countries in Europe um, because I think you had, a, you had generations who kept seeing dead orthodoxy, people who had all their theology right but had no spirit. It, it was not moving them to live a certain way. The flip side can be we can have spirit, external, call zealous heterodoxy and you're like what in the world is that all right zealous you got that part it's exciting it's enthusiastic heterodoxy means we've mixed a bunch of stuff the smorgasbord religion we've picked from this and this and this and this and we've created something that works all right that's what churches are doing today that's a dangerous thing when we start doing worship that way so we see here from this text, it's giving us a foundation of worship is according to my terms and my preferences. It's according to God's word. But if I am truly worshiping, it should be engaging me completely. And it says nothing. Jesus says nothing about the place. 
the place. He says, it's not even Samaria or Jerusalem because he's preparing, he's setting the table for what's going to happen at at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He's setting the table for what we talked about in our first who is, where is the temple of God? And now I've lost you. You faded in the sunset. All right. Yeah. As we looked at, we are the temple of the living God. That's why Jesus was laying the groundwork saying, it's, soon it's not going to matter anymore. We're not talking Jerusalem anymore or even Samaria, which probably was quite shocking to her because she's thinking he's going to argue me in the ground and say, you know, it's Jerusalem, it's not Samaria. And he shocks her even more with things that he's already said. Now he's saying it's not even about Jerusalem. He said it's not going to matter because the rest of the revelation in the New Testament, worshiping in spirit and in truth becomes a life issue. Okay, a life issue. And that's what we want to draw tonight. So having said that, let me go over one more page, 5.3, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Top of that page there, you're right across the page of your book. Powerful statement at the end of the book of Hebrews. It says, through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Now, we don't have the word worship there, but we have a word that's repeated that obviously is a picture word of worship. What is it? Okay, that's a good one. Sacrifice, sorry. Yeah, I didn't think about that one. Praise is part of it. But when we think of sacrifice, sacrifices in the Old Testament were a part of the prescribed worship. Over and over, lambs were slain, certain types of lambs, certain ways. Shows up and he says this Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. For years, through their lifetime, kids grew up, adults grew up watched lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb have their throat slit, put to death, blood poured out, and finally the connection is made after 400 years of silence from the Old Testament and New Testament. That lamb is not all that you saw die. This is that lamb. Talk that that sacrifice then is is worship is active. It's participative. It's not a spectator sport. Worship is not sit back and enjoy the show. But unfortunately, that is the danger in our churches today. The churches today often are what is cool out there, what works out there, is you do these things, you draw on the crowd, but what does a crowd do? And Dale uh, West mentioned it. The crowd just, it may get into it, but at the end of the day, the crowd is not really going to be engaged. Oftentimes, the crowd's like a football team, football crowd. Yeah, they're screaming and yelling, but at the end of the day, they're not doing anything. It's the players out there that are doing it all, all right? So here we're talking about worship and sacrifice, but it gives us three things. And I was going to ask you, time is running short, because I want to jump into um, the consulting other sources. But when we jump to these scriptures, which, again, I've forgotten to put up here, here's the question I ask. What do these verses teach us about worship? And really, a part of what it does, and I'm just going to jump into it quickly, and that is it shows us that words, 
our worship is in words because it says, let us continually offer to God. Not just when we have corporate worship. It is a life of prayer. Which, think about it for a second then. If, shockingly, one of the things that people were put to death in the Old Testament for was complaining and grumbling, do we understand why? Because worship is communicating the greatness of our God, what He has done, grumbling and complaining... We can point fingers about everything in life, but at the end of the day, we're pointing that finger ultimately back at God. And I read the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Some of you have read that book, an excellent book. And I still remember to this day being convicted when he's talking about the sovereignty of God, and he's talking in there about the weather and how we complain about the weather. I mean, who doesn't do that? You know, especially if you've got some event you want to have good weather for that day, or if you're just sick and tired of a really long, cold, snowy winter. All right? But his point was this. But when we do that, that's a reflection on God. Because God controls the weather. He controls it all. So do my words betray that I really don't love and honor the person who controls the weather? Or am I like, all right, this is what God has for today. Let's make the most of it. Let's thank Him for it. Let's move on. And yet that's where we're starting to pull worship into life. It's a sacrifice of praise, not just in the church auditorium, but in our life. Also, it says at the end of in verse 16, to do good and share with others with such sacrifices God is pleased. Again, this worship interacting and action, not passive. And, and it shows again, here's another part where it shows worship is connected to life. It's not just up reading scriptures. It's connected to doing good and sharing with others connected to my ministry to others which is what i've said in other weeks when jesus said if you simply give a cup of cold water in my name you've done it to me you've done it for me that's worship i mean that's that's the simple childlike picture that we pull from from jesus that is what hebrews is drawing out here and that worship again is life all right now having said that let's jump very quickly in our last few minutes to consult other sources. To do that, be awake. The second article, just to see one statement, and then we're going to go back to the first article. Please, no talking over there. Oh, that's my wife. Just kidding. All right. 5.10, the essence of worship. All right. Everybody has a definition for worship, so we need to find some kind of workable definition for worship. If you look at 5.10 on the right column, first paragraph, first full paragraph, it says, Thank you for active response to God whereby we declare His Word. Okay? So what that's saying is worship is not passive. We're not just sitting back and happens. But also, it is active, and as we've already seen, it's doing good, it is verbal, it is relational, it is a lot of things. And according to God's word, that's worshiping in spirit and in truth, I am declaring his worth, his value, his glory, who he is. 
tie that to a passage that Pastor preached on recently in the Sermon on the Mount. That when he was preaching in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, talking about salt and light. Uh, we know this verse, uh, Matthew 5, 16. And it just went right out of my head. I have no idea why. Um, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Okay, you lie lost you, right? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. Again, that is a worship life. That is saying that worship is active and it's to... foundational verses for worship and action, which means that worship is not passive. We participate. Worship is not simply a mood, all right? The mood sometimes, worship or an event. It's not that. It's not just a feeling. It should be feeling-oriented to a degree, but it's a declaration, as we've seen. Now, having said that, go back to 5.6. 5.6. I like the title of the article, uh, well written, Monday Morning Worship. Okay? Uh, how often do we think of Monday morning as worship time? I'm thinking like never, all right? Monday morning is, I hate this, it's cold. Yeah, we haven't turned our heat on, so it's getting colder and colder in the house. Can we make it to November? You know, that's a little chilly sometimes, but, you know, you get out of the house and it's all good. So we'll see. But Monday morning, we don't associate with worship. All right? Honestly, if we're thinking of the work week, we associate Friday with worship. Because, like, yippee we are so out of here. We're, we're go have fun. We are out of prison. All right? We've been set free. But what he's going to hit at, really the heart of where I'm trying to hit at, and really what, what Jesus has already alluded to, worshiping is worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and he's saying it's not going to be localized in a place, all right, which he's already at that worship saying that without much. In other words, verse 13 is telling us as well that worship is a response to other people. Well, here in Monday morning worship, I introduce us with this thing about Elvis. If you read this, and the oldies like, oh yeah, Elvis, I sang his songs and this kind of stuff, and and we don't even want to go there. All right, but the, he he makes an allusion to um, people that go down to. I was trying to think of the places, Graceland. All right, see. Um, people that still to this day are are Elvis fans, and here's what he says out. All right, this their idol Elvis. They dress like him. They listen to his music all the time. They bought all his trinkets. They talked about King. All right, the King. You know, and and his whole point was this: How in the world is it that a guy that when he was alive and when he's dead, people are this crazy about him, and especially after he's dead? They're still, they're like rabid fans, all right? They, they can't get enough of him, but he's been dead for a long time. He's still the king. They still buy his stuff. You still see somebody dressed up like Elvis, and it's not just in Vegas anymore. It's everywhere. I mean, they want somebody to dress up like Elvis for a wedding and for bar mitzvah, maybe. I don't know, all right? But he, here's the reality. His tension is 
how can it be that, sorry, <laughs> came out. I have no idea why. All right. Now that you're, now I've just totally lost you guys. All right. How can it be? How can it be that people can be that gripped by a man who's dead and that devoted to dress like him, to look like him, to be like him, to have his mannerisms, to buy his stuff, to want have everything to be about him, and yet we don't do that with the real king. So yeah, amen, that's right. But that's us. It's not them out there, that's us. Um, we're still wrapped up with our own little world, and, and honestly, the king isn't Elvis, and on many days, the king isn't God. The king is is the one with the crown when we look in the mirror in the morning. You know, we, we want our little world. As I said before, we're supposed to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, but in our hearts sometimes it's more my kingdom come, my will be done. That's why I'm ticked today. That's why I'm complaining about the weather, you know. And so what we're talking about is worship. So when he asked the question, what is worship there on page 5.6, it's talking about connecting it to our life and literally there in that first paragraph, or first full paragraph, under the question, what is worship? It takes from the Old Testament, and it, and it like Daniel, uh, or like uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, bowing down to this idol, or literally to kiss toward. If you go to, if you go to Psalm 2, where it talks about the nations, the nations raging, rebelling against the king, rebelling against ultimately the Messiah king, Jesus, who would come, if you read at the end of that psalm, it says, kiss the sun or kiss toward the sun. In other words, that was in a response of honor, of importance, of submission. In other words, these nations are going to rage and they're going to pull together and they're going to have one last final rebellion. And those nations who did not kiss toward that king and did not bow toward that king are going to be those same people says they're going to be running. Here's what we need to see. Yes, as a believer, I need to see that God is that God who is all-powerful. But over here, who has a love that is beyond my ability to comprehend. Because my ability to comprehend love too often is flavored by my relationship in life. Growing up with my parents, with kids, with spouses, with our own kids. You know, how, how, how messy that can get, all right? Let's just think through that. But that, the picture here is worshiping is worshiping towards someone who we ought to fear, but yet at the same time who we adore because of what he has done for us. Now, the tension, and I'm just going to end with this tonight because this is how I need to end. Here's the tension from the Old Testament or New Testament. It's part of what's in our notes, and I'll just have you close the books because if I say we're at the end, you already closed your books and your mind's checked out two minutes ago, all right? Here's the tension, all right? When we look at the Old Testament, it looks like it was highly structured, highly organized worship. Then when we get to the New Testament, it seems to be kind of freewheeling, all right? It doesn't seem to be highly organized, highly structured, but we also look at the Old Testament. There was exuberant praise. There was 
an outpouring of response of the people. There were days of worship, not just an hour. There were days of worship. Um, and obviously, they can get into rituals and routine. But here's, here's the tension that we have to work through, first of all, on a corporate worship, and then we kind of narrow it down to you and me. The tension is this. We can often have a highly structured show, all right? In other words, we come on Sunday, and Sunday is just, man, that was good, all right? And the question we walk away, if we're going to answer that question, so when you walk away, you go, man, that was good. What was good? And, and here's the reality. I mean, here's the tension. If, if it's anything other than God, we're missing the mark somehow. We're not structuring things well because the tension is over here. When God structured everything that he did in the Old Testament, it pointed to him. Everything was pointed to him. Everything was precisely for him. Then on the other side over here, there's loosely structured chaos. That's the only other way I can say it. In other words, people just show up and say, hey, the spirit moves us. Whatever happens, happens. And, and over here, it's kind of like we just let it all hang out. And, and there's no structure to it. And some people, see, that's where movements have happened in the course of church history where we had dead to tears and they're showing up in church and, and they're just dying in their seats, all right, because there's just nothing going on. And, and, and you walk into a room, it's like many Catholic churches today. You go to a Catholic church and who's in that church? What is it populated with? Mostly who? Okay, thank you. That's a good way to put it. I was thinking, who's going to give this answer? Because I'm going to say the wrong word. Seniors. More mature people, all right? I mean, if you look at many Catholic churches, because it has become dead orthodoxy, it's this highly structured, but it has lost both spirit and truth. It's dead. Then there's people over here who are just creating an extravaganza show in churches, and you have then a Joel Olstein with a mega church down in Houston that has a lot of so-called spirit. There's a lot of enthusiasm, but truth is going further and further and further over here. So obviously, that's not good, and that's not good. So as a church, we have to be careful to guard that. But I take that even down to you and me. Who said, I forget who said this tonight, that we are an audience of one. Was that you that said that, Wes? Okay. That, that is tying into not just our worship in church. But if we can walk out of here tonight thinking in terms of worship in this way, worship isn't Sunday. Worship is life. And every day in life, there is an audience of one. He is always there. He is always there with us. He is always there prompting us. He is always there listening to us. He is always there telling us, I love you, I'm with you. I'm lo- I love you, I'm with you. I will lead you, I will help you. I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. But our audience of one really becomes not a dialogue audience of one. It becomes a monologue. And that is, it's just me talking to me, me listening to me. Um, and I, I say that because, yes, we could say worshiping on Sunday morning is a waste of time if we haven't worshiped God during the week. And remember, my answer to that was maybe, maybe. I mean, God can work in our lives. 
idea of having the worst possible self-centered, selfish week we've ever could have, God can still work in our heart. But what makes the difference on Sunday is when we realize that worship is every aspect of my life at all times. So when you hop in your cars tonight, when you're making your choices about what you do and don't do, uh, every aspect of it is that audience of one is me and God. And the reason I show up on Sunday going, I can't wait to hear the word, I can't wait to sing, and there's not enough money that I can give to God that's going to show my love to him because what he's done for me. Sunday really is an overflow of Monday through Saturday. But if Monday through Saturday the tank is on fumes, as you say, I remember my parents saying that all the time, what does that mean, the car's on fumes? I have no idea. All right, if our spiritual tank is on fumes, then we're going to be sitting there, and we might get moved by the music. There might be a song that grabs us. We may be moved by a, a quote or a statement in the worship, in, in, the, in a message. But here's how we know if we've truly worshipped. Do we respond? Not just do we respond emotionally, but does it move us to respond Remember we said worship was in bowing toward is talking about honoring God, seeing his importance, but submitting to him. As he prompts us through the word, through the songs, through whatever, is it moving me to respond and is it changing me that week? When I have my Monday morning worship, how good was that? Or did it not happen? That's where we are. Now, I realize Wednesday is the hardest, the hardest days to worship because you're just hanging on to keep going, all right? But we keep worshiping, we keep seeking, and we come away with Psalm 95.3 tonight. I encourage you to memorize it. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have in your mercy and in your grace uh, called us out as false worshipers to be true worshipers. And yet, Lord, even though if we have been called out by your grace into the body of Christ, we are your true worshipers, we admit that we easily slip into old ways of thinking and we focus on ourselves more than you. And Lord, we know that David has said, taste and see that the Lord is good, and we can quote that verse perhaps. But at the end of the day, there's so many other things that we taste that seem to taste a lot better. And I pray, Father, that we would give ourselves our time, our effort to tasting and seeing you in the word of God, in prayer, in life, so that our life is an overflow of that relationship that is growing, whether it's in rainy days or sunny days, whether it's in stormy days or calm days, those each day is a day in an audience of one with you for the glory of your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.